everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this week we're going to discuss some news and notes, all things 49ers from the past week, including some coaching updates, some QB updates, and signings the 49ers made. In the plus section, we're going to talk Kyrie Irving's trade to the Dallas Mavericks, HBO's hit series The Last of Us, and some thoughts I have about zombie shows in general, and some Star Wars and Star Trek books I read and listened to recently that I wanted to share with you. But as always, it starts with the Niners, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! And it was a weird weekend, right? The first weekend without NFL football for five months, really six months if you count, beginning of August when preseason football starts. But there was the Pro Bowl, the Pro Bowl games on Thursday and Sunday. And Kyle Juszczyk, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey, Talanoa Hufunga, Trent Williams, and Fred Warner were on hand. And I watched some of it. It was entertaining, including the flag games that happened on on Sunday. And I think it was a welcome change for a lot of the players who, and Christian McCaffrey said, You know, I like this new format. I don't need to be hit anymore. And after a long season for all players, especially players like the 49ers or anybody on the Bengals who were in the championship games the week before, not getting hit, but participating and making memories with with your colleagues and your peers was, I think, I think something fun and something different for them. But jumping into San Francisco, so... A couple days after the loss in the NFC Championship game, the 49ers held an end-of-year press conference like they always do. John Lynch really kicked it off um, saying that he's proud of the team, that 49er fans, 49er faithful should be proud of where the team is at and for the future. Now, there obviously will be changes to the roster in 2023 versus this past season, and we'll get into that a little bit today. More so next week and even more so in um, following podcasts when players start to sign and free agency officially kicks off. But one of the things Lynch did say is that he isn't going anywhere, that he enjoys being the GM of the 49ers, and that he feels like he has unfinished business, also known as a Super Bowl victory. There were rumors last year or last offseason, that Lynch may be taking a broadcasting job for Amazon Prime. And not to say that those jobs are, you know, filled up now. He's He wouldn't be one of the commentators, because that's Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreet. But they could put him somewhere in the studio, in pre- or post-scheme. And it's not limited to Amazon. There's still NBC, Fox, CBS... And ESPN and anything at NFL Network if he should want it. But it doesn't sound like now is the right time. He didn't give a time frame for how long he's going to remain the GM. I believe he's under contract for three more years, including 2023. So through 2025, I believe, just as Kyle Shanahan is. And I think that stability is important. Um, it was a hire when it happened in 2000, early 2017 that I was flabbergasted by I mean you're talking about someone that had no front office front office experience at all let alone no GM experience 
And it was pairing a first-time head coach, Kyle Shanahan, with a first-time GM or first-time personnel person uh, at all. And I was taken back. And at the time, I didn't think it was a good hire. I was all for the Shanahan hire. I was excited for that. But pairing new coach and new GM, wasn't sure how it was going to be. But I think like in any aspect of business or an organization, as long as you surround yourself with good and smart people, it'll make you even that more successful. And it's not to say that the general manager is the figurehead of the organization, the person out there talking to the media, although John Lynch certainly is that. He's played football. He has a high, He's a Hall of Famer. He has a high football acumen. But I think the hires that he's made around him over the years has helped him. And I'm sure in, in five years since, he's grown into the position and continues to grow every day. One of the interesting things that he did say, which when you hear it, you think, oh, is he is he taking a shot? But you understand it, especially given the curse that the 49ers have been under. And we'll get into that in a few minutes. John Lynch did say that Trey Lance this offseason and moving forward needs to prove that he can stay healthy. And John Lynch cited his own career as an example that in the first couple of years of his career, he was he had numerous injuries, not that he was dubbed injury prone or not. But he learned how to condition himself better, take care of himself better during the season and in the offseason, which helps with some injuries, soft tissue type things, muscle pulls, etc. But in Trey Lance's case, you know, breaking an ankle, I, I don't care how much conditioning you're going to have unless your bones are made of kryptonite, they're, they're going to break. And some of it is bad luck, but I think it is fair since Trey Lance has had some, some nicks some injuries since he came into the league um, in 2021. So that is important. And it was something that Shanahan discussed as well. I think it was the last question of the press conference. He was asked, you know, more or less, do you think you need to do a better job protecting your quarterbacks given the injuries that you've had? And we're going to get into the injuries, but I want to read back. Shanahan's quote and and he I think took a bit offense to it and I think there is and you'll hear in the first sentence some common sense stuff that the media often lacks they ask softball questions or they ask in some cases stupid questions one I guess just to to garner a response because it's a question that I think they they believe the public needs to know but I think there's a way you can ask it without yourself sounding like a blatant moron. And it, it takes me back to the late Kobe Bryant of the Lakers. The season or the game that he tore his Achilles, his ligament that is basically connects his uh, back of his foot, his ankle to his calf. He tore his Achilles during a game, hobbled a bit. He got fouled, I think, when he tore it, shot two free throws, and came hobbling off the court. In the post-game press conference, he mentioned, like, they, they already they had the examination or an x-ray or whatnot. It's a torn Achilles, and he, and he basically told the reporters, he's like, I heard it snap. I felt it. I knew it was my Achilles before there was any examination. And the reporter's follow-up question was, 
well, did you think you could play through it at the time? And I remember his response, you know, or just the look on his face of, hey, dude, I I just told you that I tore my Achilles tendon and you just asked me if I thought I could play through it. Of course not. He hobbled himself out. You could, there's some things you can play through. Hell, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, former Chargers quarterback Phillip Rivers once played an AFC championship game with a torn ACL that he tore the week or two before he braced it up and played through it. I tore my ACL in college. I used a brace and was able to play play basketball somewhat. And Achilles, little bit different. Your, Your foot is basically hanging like a flap because your your leg, your calf cannot control it anymore. So just an example of, of just stupid media questions. And here was Shanahan's response about protecting, if, his, if he needs to protect the quarterback better. I think if you looked at the injuries, common sense would answer that question. How have they gotten hurt? I mean, I'm sorry that Josh, got a con- Josh Johnson got a concussion when he hit the ground. So that's the fourth one that you're talking about this year. I'm sorry our quarterback got his elbow bent backwards on a normal drop-back pass. I'm sorry on a drop-back pass someone rolled up on Jimmy's ankle, which is half true because he was actually scrambling and carrying two defenders on him trying to gain yardage when the defender fell backwards and his ankle got caught behind him. And then we have a dual-threat quarterback who got hurt running the ball. To throw all those four in that category... No quarterbacks got hurt when we had to hand it off the whole second half, so we can look into that. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard that I've said that the 49ers overall have had bad injury luck. I haven't necessarily compared it to other teams. I haven't done an analysis on where they rank, but they have had a large number of players end up on either short-term IR or season-ending IR the past five years that Shanahan's been here. And looking specifically at the quarterbacks, let's go through them. And we'll stop at each one and we'll talk about if it's bad luck or if if something that could have happened. So 2017, no real quarterback injuries. Uh, C.J. Beathard took a beating. He was a rookie at the time. Played through it. Uh, they had Brian Hoyer, and then last, then they traded for Jimmy Garoppolo around Halloween. He played the last five games, played really well, no injuries. 2018, Jimmy Garoppolo tore his ACL non-contact. He was at Kansas City, running out of bounds, planted his foot, and his knee went. 2019, Jimmy's healthy, and he took a Beating, he took a bunch of sacks, no injuries, played all 16 games and all three playoff games um, on his way to the Super Bowl against the Chiefs. 2020, Jimmy had a high end. Now, this was the year everybody got hurt. Bosa blew out his ACL. Armstead was hurt. Jimmy got hurt. Other members of the secondary, offensive line, it was a mess. But quarterback specifically, Jimmy had a high ankle sprain, which those are... Usually month to six week injuries. He came back too soon. He only, he only, he came back. uh, I think he only missed like two or three games. Came back, re-injured it again, was basically done for the season. 
That year, Nick Mullins, former backup quarterback against the Cowboys, one of the last weeks of the season, same hit that Brock Purdy took against the Eagles, tore his UCL in his elbow. 2021, Jimmy dealt with calf, shoulder, and thumb injuries, only missed two games, and those were games that Trey Lance started. One against the Cardinals, loss, one against the Texans, second to last week of the season, and he won. In 2021, Trey Lance hurt his knee against the Cardinals, and that's because he ran the ball, I think, like 16 times. But he also had a thumb injury, which he sustained in training camp, that never really healed. And now this past year, 2022, week two, Trey Lance, broken ankle. Jimmy Garoppolo, ankle sprain, bad ankle sprain. Uh, which was, I think, week 12. Brock Purdy, NFC Championship game, UCL tear. Josh Johnson, NFC Championship game, concussion. So, you know, of these, Jimmy had a non-contact ACL. That's not Shanahan's fault. Uh, Getting high ankle sprains, coming back too soon. Coming back too soon, you could put on maybe coaching or the medical staff or, or Jimmy being adamant that he could protect himself, and he couldn't. He came back, I think, against Miami, and he just, he could not, He could not play. Nick Mullins, UCL injury. He gets hit. Again, how many times have we seen a hit, a strip sack, where the defender is going high, getting the ball, but doesn't have a... These are the only two UCL injuries in recent memory. Otherwise, you have to go back almost 20 years to Jake DeLome of the Carolina Panthers. You know, Jimmy pulls his calf, shoulder, thumb. I think his thumb he hit on on a helmet on a on a throw. Bad luck. Trey Lance's knee injury in 2021 in Arizona. I could sort of put that on coaching. Now, Trey Lance, I think this was like the first m- month or two of the season. He was not ready to play. I think he completed under 50% of his passes, ran the ball more than 15 times. That took a wear and a toll on his body, wound up injuring his knee there, and the thumb injury I mentioned he sustained during training camp. Trey Lance's broken ankle. Again, do we want to say it was because of the play call? Do you want to put put that on Shanahan? You you can't. Again, how many times do you see, over the years, have you seen Russell Wilson run, Lamar Jackson, Josh, Josh Allen for the Bills, who takes... Really, no care of his body. He goes jumping into people, diving over people. That was an example where Trey Lance's foot, his leg, got caught behind him, and he got bent backwards. His ankle got caught. Again, I I don't like the play call, and I still don't think. You know, listen, Cam Newton of the Panthers got his career cut short by running the number of design runs that he did, and he took a beating. And maybe the Panthers said, well, we got a good 70 years out of you. Who cares? The same thing's going to happen to Josh Allen with the Bills. He's got to learn to slide. They have to learn to the quarter the the coaching staff has to learn to protect him from himself. You can't control if he's going to run and break the pocket and pick up yards. You can control running QB powers up the middle or off the edge where you're going to have linemen and linebackers converge. At least when you're scrambling from the pocket looking to pass on a broken play as a quarterback, at least you could see if you have room to run. If there's nobody there and you want to step up, you could run, pick up six, seven, eight, ten yards, slide, or run out of bounds, and you're good. 
something to see depending on where Trey Lance falls in the pecking order next year in terms of these run plays. And Jimmy this year, the ankle, that one was kind of on Jimmy in a way. It's honorable that he was fighting for an extra yard or two, but when you have two 280-plus pounders on your back or even the first ones coming at you and you have been nicked up a lot in the past, just go down. I think that's on top of everything else about Brady, he knew when to fight another day. He wasn't going to take a hit. Sometimes he dropped to the ground so fast you thought he was on fire. Jimmy needs a little bit more of that. Brock Purdy's UCL, again, we talked about bad luck, and Josh Johnson's concussion in some ways looked like it could have been in a personal foul on Indomitian Sue, a body weight type of tackle. Now, where does this leave the 49ers, at least with Jimmy G this offseason? Well, Shanahan in this press conference came out and said, Verbatim, no, I don't see any scenario of Jimmy coming back. And I understand it. Now, that is a definitive type of thing. If Brock Purdy opts for the longer 12-month elbow recovery, the Tommy John surgery, we're going to go into that in a second, then maybe you leave the door open, but it's not going to be Shanahan's decision or John Lynch's. It's going to be Garoppolo's. Remember, last year, the only reason Garoppolo returned to the 49ers was because his market dried up because he had shoulder surgery in February, beginning of February. Free agency starts the beginning of March. There, he wasn't really healed from his shoulder surgery until training camp. And then they ostracized him, the 49ers did. He wasn't working with the team, he was working on a side field with the trainers, still again rehabbing his shoulder. And I think you heard it during the regular season. There's a difference between working out on a side field with a trainer and throwing the ball with velocity during games that his elbow, his, excuse me, his elbow, his shoulder wasn't quite 100% until maybe two to three weeks, four weeks into the actual season when he took over for Trey Lance. From a financial scenario, it makes sense for Jimmy to move on for both parties with Trey Lance and Brock Purdy. The 49ers have two quarterbacks on rookie contracts in total. The 49, these two quarterbacks are costing only $10 million against the salary cap. That's a huge win. And based on sport track, a website that, I mean, it's a great website in terms of contracts for all sports, not just NFL, but it'll go over free agents the salary cap, how much an annual value of a contract is, again, not just for the NFL, but also for higher-end free agents give a market value for what they are worth in free agency. And SportTrack is saying that Jimmy is worth about $35 million a year. There's no way the 49ers can afford that on their cap, and Jimmy shouldn't come back for a discount. I mean, again, it would have to be the same, if he were to come back, the same 6 to $10 million deal, and if he can get two to three more times more than that, he should, and there are needy teams. We're going to go over it more next week. Jimmy is Jimmy is all but gone, and I think it's pretty. You know, if you have to bet on it, I, I would bet. I'd bet the house on it. But they are going to be looking for another quarterback, whether it's a third or fourth quarterback. Shanahan did say yes. We are going to be going after the best available quarterback that fits our team structure and salary cap. Now, this is this is even in a perfect world. Trey Lance is supposed to be healthy in about three to fully healthy fully healthy for three to four weeks for organized team activities. He'll be ready in April. Brock Purdy, we're going to get into his situation. But assuming they're 
both fully healthy, they could still go after an Andy Dalton on the Saints, a Mitchell Trubisky if he gets released from the Steelers, a Jacoby Brissett. I don't know if he's under contract from the Browns. They can still go after, you know, a a 30 plus year old journeyman type quarterback. And we'll see if the 49ers decide to keep three quarterbacks on the roster this year and maybe even a fourth on the practice squad. Why not? I'm not sure if the NFL is going to change that rule that you need three quarterbacks on your active roster. Doesn't hurt to look. Now, one another quarterback that is not going to be a 49er next year, and it's due to financials and his team is Aaron Rodgers. And last week at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am golf tournament, which he won, Aaron Rodgers was asked about the 49ers, and his verbatim response was, I'm not going to San Fran. Now, we also did say on the Pat McAfee podcast um, earlier on in the week that it's interesting that there are trade discussions going on that do not involve him, that he's not a part of, but the Packers have already come out and said, we are not going to trade Aaron Rodgers to an NFC team. There is no way, you know, the the Niners have been a thorn in, in the Packers and Aaron Rodgers' side for the past 10 years, going back to Colin Kaepernick beating him in the playoffs a couple times. They're not going to, no ma- even if the 49ers gave them the best return, they would not trade Aaron Rodgers to the 49ers. And the fact of the matter is, Aaron Rodgers is making over $50 million next year. No matter how you restructure that contract, they cannot fit him within their salary cap structure. He is going to the, he's going to the AFC. He's going to go to the Jets or the Raiders or maybe the Titans. Uh, blanking on any other AFC teams that can eat him. Those are probably the top three. Maybe Baltimore if they trade Lamar Jackson, but he will not be a 49er. Defensive coordinator update. So a lot of people's first choice, Vic Fangio, signs with, or was hired by the Miami Dolphins as their defensive coordinator the day after Kyle Shanahan says that he, he does not want to change the scheme too much. He likes running a wide nine defensive line, four defensive linemen. Um, playing, you know, three deep, some cover three, sometimes uh, one deep. And Vic Fangio likes to run a three, four. Usually it doesn't necessarily, it's not contradictory to the 49ers personnel, but I think Kyle Shanahan loves the scheme that has taken off since 2019. So it's been four years of solid defense. So he doesn't want to shake that up too much. So what are the options? So former Carolina Panther interim coach Steve Wilkes uh, is apparently interviewing either today or, or might have been yesterday. I haven't heard anything about that. He might be the front runner right now. Chris Harris interviewed uh, January 31st. He's interviewing for the Houston Texans job either today or tomorrow. And defensive lineman Chris Korosek, defensive lineman, uh, defensive line coach, excuse me, for the 49ers, might be a candidate to be elevated, although he said in the past he does not want to be a defensive coordinator. He in, he likes his position as a D-line coach. D'Amico Ryans, now head coach of the Texans, may bring him along to Houston. So the way the 49ers will keep him would be any sort of pay bump or title bump, a, you know, assistant, defensive coordinator, defensive line coach, something that looks like a promotion. And I think Korshek, uh has earned a pay bump, but a couple others to keep an eye on. So what about Ejiro Evero? So he's, he was the Broncos defensive coordinator last year, did a really good job with a Broncos defense. that was on the field a whole lot because the offense was terrible. 
He got out of his contract when Sean Payton became the head coach of the Broncos. He was going to interview with the Vikings, didn't. The Vikings made a defensive coordinator hire, so Evero is still out there. And Sean Desai, who was last year Seattle's defensive assistant and assistant associate head coach, is another possibility. Hopefully in the coming days there will be some clarity and a hiring that we could discuss on next week's podcast. And then one note, which was more or less a, a non-issue, but at, at that end of season press conference or when the players are cleaning out their lockers, the media is there and someone asked uh, all pro left tackle Trent Williams, if he was thinking about retirement at the time, he says, listen, it was, it's been a grind. I want to take some time, decompress to see if I want to go through the grind again. And a couple days later, he was all amped up to return in 2023 and beyond. So that's great news, especially with right tackle Mike McGlinchey being a free agent and probably not returning. To, to lose both tackles in an offseason would have been tough. So they have Trent Williams back at least for 2023 and hopefully for 2024 as well also. And one other player note, well, one other um, lineman note, we'll go to the defensive side of the ball. So second-round draft pick, Defensive end Drake Jackson out of USC, you know, was drafted to hopefully be the bookend pass rushing counterpart to Nick Bosa. Had an okay rookie season, played in 14 of 17 regular season games, but he didn't play in the regular season finale or any of the three playoff games. And at first I thought, well, maybe the teams that they're playing, Seattle, the Cowboys, and the Eagles, Maybe they wanted to have a bigger defensive end active to defend against the run. Someone who could still rush the passer, whether it was a Kerry Hyder, a Jordan Willis, a Char Charles Amena, who would have been active regardless. That, you know, maybe just his body type and, and where he was as a rookie just wasn't what the Niners wanted as at a backup DN in the playoffs. But apparently, in the press conference, Shanahan said that Drake Jackson hit the rookie wall. So college football players really only play about 14 games, and that's usually if you make the national championship, which USC hasn't in a while. So he's probably played about 12 games in his college, uh, every season in his college career. So jumping up to 14 was a jump, but still to have him inactive for, for the last four games, I don't know what goes into hitting a rookie wall. I also do think like maybe a week's rest or two weeks rest might have gotten him rejuvenated. But again, he was inactive for the last four games of the 49ers season. Hopefully that's something next year, you know, and a lot of rookies do work through this, that he can work through and take the step up, you know, and be the defensive end that, that the 49ers envision him being when they drafted him. So now back to quarterbacking Brock Purdy. And his surgery options, the last that we heard, is that he is leaning towards the six-month option where they reattach his UCL ligament in his elbow using that internal brace that keeps the ligament in, in place. And this is a six-month surgery versus Tommy John, which is a Tommy John surgery, which is over 12 months. And basically what they do there is they create a new ligament and they drill holes or tunnels in both of your arms, your, your forearm and your arm leading to your shoulder. And then they tunnel the ligament through and connect it. So it ultimately creates in a way, a stronger ligament or a more taut ligament 
That's why pitchers who come back say that their elbow has never felt better. And they usually, some of the, or a lot of them are throwing harder than they ever have before. But Brock has come out and said that he wants to be ready for training camp. And I said this on last week's podcast, but I think it's important enough to, to reiterate here. The only dog I have in the fight as a fan is seeing what Brock Purdy did over nine games. Uh, well, eight games and a drive. It played really, really well. Hoping that carries over into next year. Hoping he takes like the sophomore leap in year two. But I do think with Trey Lance becoming healthy, Brock's opportunity to win and never let go of the starting quarterback job for San Francisco is contingent upon him getting the six-month surgery. Because there is obviously the possibility that Trey Lance plays so well if Brock is out for a year, a calendar year, that that Shanahan and Lynch have justified faith in Trey Lance, who they traded up to number three in a boatload of picks for. And if it is the quarterback type that Shanahan wants, someone that is a dual threat, it'll be tough to imagine going back to Brock Purdy or making it a quarterback competition going into the 2024 season. The injury does throw a wrench in if Purdy is the favorite going into training camp. If he was healthy, I would say that he would be. And that Trey Lance, who hasn't proven himself at all, needs to prove and beat out Purdy for the starting spot. Now, even with a six-month surgery coming off of coming off of the injury, even though the injury is, and this is important, so it's a six-month recovery. The first three months are actually like not doing anything, letting the elbow and the ligament recover. Three months, the three months after that is physical therapy and throwing. At the end of the six-month mark, he's basically good to go. It's not like after six months, and Shanahan asked this question, is it after six months, do we have to slowly ramp him up and get him ready in training camp and, and, and the preseason? And the answer was no. That happens in the second three months of his recovery. Again, first three months healing, second three months PT, building the elbow back up. So at the six-month mark, he's fully healthy. Again, that's best-case circumstances that we're all hoping for. So again, I think Brock's leaning towards the six month. I think the 49er management is. I think that'll make everyone feel better. That barring any setbacks, they have two healthy, viable starting quarterbacks going into training camp in the 2023 season. And just to leave on this note, even though he only played six regular season games and two full playoff games, well, six and and some in that Dolphin game that he came in, Brock Purdy had the highest quarterback rating in the league this year. And again, not a small sample size. That was more than a third of games. And he had the highest. Again, I always go back. If this was Trey Lance's first six games or last six games or middle six games and he played the way Purdy did, the media, everybody would have been shouting from the rooftops that the 49ers have found their QB savior. The reason why there's doubt, and I've said this before, is because Brock Purdy was a seventh-round pick and Trey Lance was a first-round pick. It's draft position bias that is hurting Purdy in some way, but I think he's, no matter what, he's made a lot of fans and a lot of believers, and I'm one of them, 
Now it's just the shoulder, I'm sorry, the elbow injury, and if he could bounce back from that. And lastly, the last section for this uh, 49ers section of the podcast, the 49ers did sign 13 players last week to future contracts. And what that means is they are minimum salary deals with little or no guaranteed money or bonuses. It doesn't count against their 53-man roster, but it does until the beginning of the season, so September, but it does count against their 90-man roster going into the offseason and training camp. So essentially, these 13 players, and I'll go through who they are, they, every team can sign players, even before the season ends, to future contracts so they have this player's rights going into the offseason. And the 49ers signed three cornerbacks. Quantrez Knight, who was a rookie last year, who was on the, their practice squad for the majority of the season. A.J. Parker, second-year player or third-year player, was on their practice squad for the last couple weeks of the season. And Trey Swilling, who was a rookie last year, he did not play for the 49ers. He was on, I believe it might have been the um, Saints. He was on a practice squad. Just don't quote me on that. The 49ers signed him to a future contract. So three corners, one defensive lineman. It was defensive end Alex Barrett. He has been on the practice squad for the past couple of years. Linebacker Curtis Robinson was on the active roster. He got hurt in the preseason the 49ers put him on injured reserve, brought him back when he was healthy for a couple games. Then as the injuries piled up and they realized they had enough bodies at linebacker, they released Robinson, signed him to the practice squad. But this is someone that has active roster experience. Four offensive linemen, Alfredo Gutierrez is someone that the Niners acquired through the international program. So he was a player in Mexico that was on their practice squad the last two years, apparently, and I'm not sure if this counts in year three, but the first two years did not count against their practice squad limit. So the limit is 16 players, but they were able to have a 17th because of Gutierrez. Keith Ismael, uh, Ismael is someone that has starting experience in the league uh, or, or playing time experience with the league with the Redskins, um, could be looked at at center this year. And two rookies, Jason Poe was a rookie out of Mercer, spent the entire season on the practice squad. So many fans, when he was signed as a free agent out of Mercer, thought he was going to make the 53-man roster. It's just what mo a lot of fans do when it comes, like you rally behind an undrafted rookie free agent. I knew he wasn't going to make the active roster, especially as a rookie or an undrafted rookie. Shanahan just does not have a lot of trust in rookies. So he was on the practice squad for the full year, and he's a bit undersized. He's 6'1", a little over 300 pounds. And Leroy Watson was a, a rookie teammate of Spencer Buford at University of Texas San Antonio, converted tight end into a tackle. I believe he played tackle his last year or two in college. He was on the practice squad for, I would say, three quarters of the season. One safety, Taylor Hawkins out of San Diego State. And three wide receivers, uh, rookie this past season, Tay Martin out of Oklahoma State. Daz Newsom was a rookie in 2021, drafted in the sixth round by the Bears, has some punt return experience. I think he's a nice addition to the practice squad since he has a little bit more NFL experience than some of these rookies. And Tyron Johnson, who has experience with the Raiders. So 13 players are signed of these. I mean, we still have free agency. We still have the draft. 
there might be two or three players here that have a, a decent chance of making some noise and cracking the active roster for 2023. But I think you're looking at, you know, 13 players or 12, if you don't count, you know, Alfredo Gutierrez, because he might not count against the limit. 12 players that have a really good chance of, of making the practice squad for the 2023 team. So that concludes our 49ers portion of the podcast um, for this week. Um, tomorrow, Wednesday, February 8th, I'll be releasing the plus section. Again, we'll be talking the Kyrie Irving trade to the Mavericks, HBO's hit series, The Last of Us. I believe it's at the midway point now, four episodes in, and some Star Wars and Star Trek books. If you're a sci-fi fan or a Star Wars or Star Trek fan that I recently completed that, I, that I'll tell you about that I think are worth checking out. So come back tomorrow with the plus section. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome back, everyone. And we are going to change the topics a bit just based on what has happened the past couple days. So we're going to start off with one 49er note. Former Panthers interim head coach Steve Wilkes has been hired as defensive coordinator. And also, I lied, it was two 49er notes. And also today, it was revealed that Brock Purdy will opt for and undergo the six-month procedure for his elbow injury and should be ready for the uh, for mid or end of training camp more to come on that information in the next podcast but for now let's change to uh basketball where last night lebron james passed kareem abdul jabbar for the all-time points leader in nba history he did that against the oklahoma city thunder in los angeles kareem was there to really pass the mantle over to him and congratulate LeBron on his achievement. Um, in addition to points, LeBron is fourth in assists and 10th all-time in steals. And at 38 years old, I mean, he's he's got to be slowing down. You, you can't perform at 38 the way that you did at 18 or 28. Um, but it is amazing what he has been able to do. And not to dive too much into where LeBron fits all-time, uh, he's a top five player, you know, in my mind. Have I even seen every player with with my own eyes? But I think from what I know and research I've done and video clips that I've seen, you could easily put him in the top five next to Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So there's your four. And then for your fifth, you if you want to put in Kobe Bryant, Will Chamberlain, Larry Bird... Magic Johnson, Stephen Curry, or or any others that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, I'm not going to argue with you. You know, LeBron has had a phenomenal career. He said that he wants to play until his oldest son, Bronny, uh, comes into the league, which I don't know if it's this upcoming draft or the next one, but that would take him to either 39 or 40 years old. And the amount of minutes he's playing, he does have his load management days off that a lot of players, you know, in this era of basketball has, but he really hasn't missed a significant amount of time to, to any big injuries. And they could always dial back his minutes, you know, play him 20, 24 minutes, maybe 28 minutes a game when his son enters the league. But the one thing I will say about LeBron and, and maybe his legacy is after that, that first run he had with the Cavs, the Cleveland Cavaliers, when he came into the league and was drafted number one overall by Cleveland, I think it was in 2003, they made it to the finals against the Spurs. He was very young. They were not, they got swept by San Antonio. Um, they were just not ready. 
But every team he has gone to since, he's felt the need to build a super team around him. So he was in Miami for four years with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. In those four years, they went to the finals or four years, won twice. They went back to Cleveland for four years, teamed with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love. I mean, Irving was there already, but he recruited Love and J.R. Smith and, and others to play with him. Won one title and got, you know, bounced by the Cavaliers a couple, I'm sorry, the Golden State Warriors a couple times during that run. And then from there, he's actually been with the Lakers now. This is his fifth year. So he's been with the Lakers longer than he was with Cleveland his second time around and Miami for the four years um, down in South Beach. And he's won, he won one title. And it was with, it was during the COVID year. It was in the bubble. And it was with um, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, not for that title. Um, they had Rajon Rondo, you know, and other players. LeBron has never gone to a team to be the missing piece. It's he's gone somewhere and he's brought or recruited other players to play with him. So the express purpose for LeBron has always been to put the best possible team together around him to win championships. And he only has four. And I don't want to, I mean, four is, don't get me wrong, it's still a good number, um, but he should have more. If he's if he is almost, in a way, an associate general manager and responsible for the roster creation, there, there should be more rings to show for it. Yes, he lost one the first time in Cleveland. He lost two in Miami. He lost another two. I think at least it was two, if not three, with Cleveland. So he's been a grand total of nine or ten times to the finals and won four of them. I, I don't know how much you can knock the fact that he's getting there, but the fact of the matter is he's built the team. His teams have been built with the express purpose of winning titles, and he's under a 50% clip or at 50% if you want to take that first Cavaliers against the San Antonio Spurs championship out, out of the mix. And the Lakers have just been mediocre for the past three years, and a lot of that is the LeBron effect. They are mortgaging their future or even their short-term future for the present, and once LeBron leaves, the Lakers are going to have nothing to show for it. No picks. They'll have money. They'll have salary cap space to bring in players, but the Lakers brand by itself is not strong enough without a big-name player, and I don't think Anthony Davis is that, and I think they should maybe look at trading him or LeBron. Um, I think the, well, the trading deadline is tomorrow, so I don't think that's going to happen, but they got one championship out of the experiment during the COVID year. If you want to consider that a success, one championship in five years, and then the other four years were essentially missing the playoffs or getting bounced early, very, very early. Not, not sure how successful of a run LeBron's run has been. But regardless, congrats for the all-time, become the all-time points leader. Now let's pivot to his one-time teammate, Kyrie Irving, who he thought was going to be his future or current teammate hoping that Irving would be traded to the Lakers. And he was not, he was traded to the Dallas Mavericks and we'll get into that trade in a second, but just to run down, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the odyssey that is Kyrie Irving was with the Cavaliers for the first six years of his career. He did not want to be Robin to LeBron's Batman left for Boston. Um, I think it was after they won the championship um, against Golden State, or the or 
the year after, two years after they won the championship against Golden State when they beat them in seven games. And game seven was in the, their home uh, floor in San Francisco. Left for Boston. Touted that he would stay there for a long time. Was there for two years. Left. Went to Brooklyn for four years with Kevin Durant. They brought in James Harden. It was a spectacular failure. And the issues with him, you know, he's he's a different kind of guy, a different kind of cat, you know, not very reliable. He took time off when he wanted, stepped away from the team, was against the COVID vaccine, which a lot of people are. Like, that's, you know, you can't say that, but um, couldn't play any home games. And in total, in four years, he's played in less than 50% of the games he was available for for the Nets, or the 50%, less than 50% of the games that the Nets had. Not a good return on your investment. He wanted out once the Nets would not commit to him long-term. And why would they commit to him long-term when he's been that flighty? You know, we can go back to the whole flat earth thing, which was not a joke. He believed it. He thinks a little bit differently than other people. I mean, he's really in touch with, you know, social justice issues, which is fantastic. You know, athletes should not be just athletes like the the person that told lebron to just shut up and dribble was completely wrong you know they might not be athletes may not be the most in any sport savvy you know um political scientists out there but they have an opinion and their opinion carries a lot more weight than probably some people on fox news or cnn or msnbc just because they're celebrities (laughs) even if you don't know what you're talking about people are going to listen which is kind of dangerous um Regardless if you're an athlete, a politician, a president. <laughs> um, but I, I, listen, I can understand where he's coming from a little bit. And it's not because I'm an only child and I have my, my selfish streaks at times, although that could possibly be it. But the only person in life that's going to look out for you is you. What about all those people the past couple months, thousands, tens of thousands of people that were laid off by tech firms or other companies that are now looking at the economy and using that as a reason to to trim some sales force. You can't have loyalty really to an employer regardless of where what the industry is, right? And and no one's going to look out for you more than you are. But I think pro sports is a little bit different and I think within pro sports basketball is probably the most different because of the size of the team it's along with hockey your roster is only about 15 16 people deep and you only start five people on a court or a hockey rink at a time so when you're out there you represent 20 percent of your team and it's probably more than that given the number of minutes that Kyrie Irvin plays compared to whoever his backups are or or Kevin Durant's backups and when you're not reliable to your employer and you're not reliable to your teammates and everyone's come together and that team was put together just like LeBron's team with the goal of winning a championship when he's not there or he's not committed and all in wants to do it and he's getting paid super handsomely for it you know whatever it may be 35 close to 40 million he's going to want more from the Mavericks than that it's hard to side with him there are times in life where and i and i do believe this that you need to be selfish you need to be about you whether it comes regarding jobs or obligations or family stuff you know you you can't always be doing stuff for other people and i'm not trying to sound like a selfish person 
everybody needs their me time and their their me instances, he takes it a little bit too far. And he wore out his welcome in Brooklyn. He's the Dallas Mavericks headache now, although I'm sure he won't be a headache. Um, and the trade was the Nets trading Kyrie Irvin and Markeith Morris for Spencer Dinwiddie, who used to be a Net, Dorian Finney-Smith, and also a second-round pick in 2027 and a first and second-round pick in 2029. Now, that may seem like a long time away, and God, when you think about it, it is four years away and six years away, 2027 and 2029. I'm sure it'll go by fast, unfortunately. I was thinking about this, you know, as I was writing up my notes, like, what are those, you know, those picks aren't going to help the Nets now. So the Nets didn't get anything in terms of, well, you know, they, they got Dinwiddie bet as a nice piece. Finney Smith provides him some depth. But is this, it's not going to keep the Nets afloat, and it's definitely not going to be attractive enough to keep Kevin Durant beyond this offseason. And there is one day left in the trading deadline, and the talk has been that the Nets are going to try to package some of these assets to another team to try to get another piece to keep Kevin Durant happy and keep them keep him here. Otherwise, you trade Kevin Durant in the offseason, get what you can, kickstart that rebuild, and if anybody wants Ben Simmons, although I highly doubt it, I don't think... If I was on a, a men's over 40 basketball team, I wouldn't want Ben Simmons. And he could dunk over me. But but he probably wouldn't because I would go up, foul him, and he'd probably hurt himself and be out for three months. The issue, I think, with for the Mavericks is, actually the non-issue, Luka Doncic, their star point guard, is only 23 years old. So even though they don't have these picks in 2027, 2029, when that comes around, he'll only be 27, 29 years old. So they can still reload. Um, and we'll see how they re-sign Irving. How many years are they going to give him? If he's if he hasn't been, you know, at some point, he is who he is, right? Like, I think we all can relate to change the topic for a second, but but the analogy remains. Like, clutter and things that we store and keep. Old wires. Remember the red, yellow, and white AV wires from TVs that are not used anymore? I probably have four of them in a bag. Coaxial cables for cable TV. Um, other connections that I don't even know what they're for, but I haven't thrown them away. I've kept them. And at some point I have to look at this and go, listen, if I haven't used these things in four or five years or 10 years or more, I'm never going to use them. And I think the Kyrie Irving example is this guy has been this way for X number of years. It's not going to change. You know, that this is who he is. They're not going to throw him away. Like I would throw away the wires that I mentioned in my example, because he's way too talented and every team, every coach always will be the one that's going to think I can get through to that person. And it's not really, it's not the case. And he's just uber talented that he gets away, he gets away with it. So I'm curious, the, the Mavericks didn't give up enough to say, you. well, look at what you gave up. You have to resign him. I don't think that's the case. I think they're going to try to resign him in a manner that's not crippling for them. And I'm curious what clauses they put in his contract because there has to be a Kyrie Irving asshole clause somehow. I don't know how you word it, but it's kind of like the Kyler Murray, you got to study more clause. And then the Cardinals were a, a bunch of wusses and backed out of it when that became public. You got to protect yourself. And I don't think anybody would look at the Dallas Mavericks sideways if they did it. So transitioning from basketball, let's get into some TV. So we are going to keep uh, the format in terms of me mentioning talking about HBO's new hit show, The Last of Us, which is based off of a PlayStation 3 video game. There are four episodes in, so that's about half the season. Um, usually comes out on Sundays, 
But because this upcoming Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday, those of you out there that have HBO Max can see it early on Friday. Otherwise, people who just have linear TV, HBO, it will be uh, on HBO on Sunday night. But I'm you know sure you'll be watching the Super Bowl. But it stars Pedro Pascal of Mandalorian fame and Bella Ramsey. They were actually in Game of Thrones together. Uh, might have been the same season. They they were. I don't think they share. They didn't share any screen time together. But we're on that same show together. And Anna Torv from the sci-fi show Fringe, uh, that was on Fox ten or so years ago. I really enjoyed her in that in that role. Um, she makes an appearance on the show as well. And if you don't know already, it's another end of the world kind of apocalyptic zombie type show, and it's about a fungus that infects the world population via the food supply, and it turns people basically into zombies, but they look, they don't look kind of like zombies. They look like people that have like mushrooms and plant like things growing out of their mouth or face or on their head. Um, so it's a little bit different of a spin in terms of, of how the apocalypse came about. And it follows Pedro Pascal, um, and Bella Ramsey traveling across the country, um, from Boston to Wyoming because he wants to find his brother because his brother has gone silent on radio and he wants to make sure he's okay. The character Ellie, who's an early teenager, um, is immune to the plague and they want to keep her safe and and get her to other locations. And I guess this location, Wyoming, is going to be the next one to see if they can examine her, test her to figure out why. And of course, as you travel across the country, you know, major cities are being controlled by different gangs or parts of the government or whatever. It, it, everything has just become uh, very much kind of like, I don't say prisons, but uh, fortresses that people are kind of claiming as their own. And that was kind of the formula for The Walking Dead. You know, listen, th- between The you know, Walking Dead, a zombie show, this is kind of a zombie show, even something like a Battlestar Galactica, which wasn't a, a zombie show, was an outer space human drama in the, in the red thread that connects these three shows is the fact that these are human beings trying to survive while other things are trying to kill them. Whether it's zombies or in Battlestar Galactica, it was the Cylon robots that humans created as helpers, but then there was a robot uprising and they're trying to wipe out humankind. So it's really, it's just, it's human survival, human drama against the backdrop of some sort of a, of an apocalypse. The Walking Dead I watched for the first couple seasons, and then I just fell away because it, even as interesting as it was, it just felt like more of the same. Okay, they're traveling somewhere else. They're meeting somebody who thinks he's really important and won't let them in to a certain city, and they're going to jail him and try to kill him. And this, again, listen, it, it had a large following. I think the following did taper off the last couple seasons, but I was shocked that there are or will be six total spinoffs for The Walking Dead. There was three Current ones and three that are upcoming. The current ones, the, the first one, Fear the Walking Dead, is in its uh, eighth season, uh, or finished up after eight seasons. Um, the Walking Dead World Beyond lasted two seasons, and Tales of the Walking Dead debuted this past August, and there's three more upcoming. I don't know how many zombie shows we need out there, but I guess as long as there's an audience, they're just going to keep making them. Um, and it's good. Listen, Last of Us, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I'm going to keep watching it. But I think my biggest issue with zombie shows in general is that the zombie population are always portrayed as kind of like mindless creatures. Whatever the virus is that's affecting people makes them super aggressive and want to eat people and infect other people, et cetera, et cetera. But in all these shows, they only go after 
uninfected humans. And to me, like if you're a mindless zombie and you're hungry or need to feed on flesh, you'd eat anything. Like you'd be eating trees. You'd be eating animals, other zombies if it came down to it. But that's just not the case. Other zombies are kind of always safe and they're going after only the humans. And it actually got to the point where when I was thinking about this, comparing it to a sci-fi show and movie, Firefly, that was on Fox 15 years ago or more, 20 years ago, only lasted for a season because Fox totally mismanaged it. Then it was followed up by the movie Serenity had their own type of zombies in it. They were called Reavers. And these were zombie-like people who were created when the government on a certain planet wanted to calm the population. So they put stuff in the air conditioning. And it calmed the people so well that they just kind of gave up and just died, just stopped doing anything. But then a very small percentage had the exact opposite response. They got hyper-aggressive. And they were the, the zombie threat that was always looming in the Firefly show. You sort of saw them, and in the movie, they, they took a much bigger role. But this, and even though this show and movie was made by Joss Whedon, who created Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the first two Avengers movies, even though he's kind of fallen on on hard times with, with some, um, you know, Me Too stuff in the past couple of years. These Reaver characters were super aggressive, but they could fly spaceships. So they would, in the movie, Serenity, they were actually chasing after the good guy's spaceship, flying, shooting at them, dogfighting in space. And then when they land and started attacking the humans on the ground, they're just running it like, like what a zombie would look like from The Walking Dead, like running after you. I don't understand how someone, uh, some mammal or creature with that aggressive, all over the place mindset could fly a spaceship, but more power to them. I think most importantly though, what are the odds that star Pedro Pascal is on, is in another show running at the same time as the show he became famous for the Mandalorian, where his character is bringing a child to where it needs to go. I think I don't know if in the history of TV that's ever happened where you've had the same character with the same sort of story quest alongside the same kind of sidekick, a child. Just interesting. And as a side note, if you haven't seen the Saturday Night Live skit of Pedro Pascal um, being Mario and, and doing a three-minute trailer for a Mario Kart movie that was modeled after the last of us very funny really imp- I don't, impressive i don't think i've seen effects or set designs with saturday night live doing something like that for just a two-minute skit um that was impressive if you wanted to kind of check that out it, it i think it's worth and if you know if you've watched the mandalorian if you've seen the last of us you'll understand what his character is doing and saying here So going from zombie stuff, so we're going from one unreal thing to another. So been reading or listening to reading books or listening to audio books a lot recently. And I've been kind of getting into a, a familiar kind of comfortable setting where I'm listening to Star Wars books and Star Trek books. I'm, I'm a much bigger Star Wars fan than Star Trek, but I have a bunch of these audible credits that have been carried over from three years ago when I was commuting 45 minutes each way to work. And I just wanted to either listen to some sort of educational book or some, something informational about history. And then I kind of started diving into 
novels, and I wound up um, purchasing a trilogy of Star Wars, Star, no, start with Star Trek, Star Trek books, the Star Trek Coda trilogy, and this actually happens at the tail end of the Star Trek novels timeline. I didn't realize that at the time, it just sounded like interesting books, and the three books are called, book one is Moments Asunder, book two, The Ashes of Tomorrow, and book three is Oblivion's Gate. And these follow the Star Trek Next Generation characters from the show that was on late 80s, early 90s. So Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard, the captain, um, Data, the android, Geordi was the, the African-American character that wore the visor, Worf was the Klingon, etc. And then Deep Space Nine kind of premiered a couple years after The Next Generation, and that was kind of taking place on a space station. And they still had, they 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 weren't, you know, space going, they weren't exploring anything, but it was kind of taking place just in this space station. They still had run-ins with enemies, etc. But, but it's a show that I've, I can't say I've watched every single episode of them. I'd say I've, I've watched half to three quarters of each one of these shows episodes. So it's nice to revisit familiar characters. And basically the story of this trilogy is there are enemies out there that are destroying timelines and complete realities or universes let's say realities as like their form of nourishment and sustenance. So the characters, so they brought back, you know, all the next star Trek, next generation characters, the deep space nine characters, um, Leonard Nimoy's Spock from the original star Trek was in it. Cause Vulcans can live like a super long time. There's even a mirror universe where there was another version of John Luke Picard and his name was just Luke Picard. Um, and in it, they actually brought back, Kirstie Alley's character from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. She played a Vulcan called Savik, and she winds up kind of being the head of this kind of Area 51 type of secret scientific installation on Earth that's helping kind of all these characters try to defeat this threat. The reason why I'm bringing this up is twofold. One, if there's any science fiction people out there that have watched or liked Star Trek, specifically The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, shows this was a nice trilogy and star trek is much more i don't want to say scientifically accurate because this is still science fiction but has much more of a science bend to it than star wars does i think that's kind of pretty obvious to anybody that's seen or watched the two franchises but where this was interesting to me was and this is going back to reading interviews with the author so there was three books three different authors each took one book on and for those of you that are aware, there's a show on Paramount called Picard, which follows Jean-Luc Picard, Patrick Stewart's character, after everything that happened in the Next Generation series and the movies that came out that these characters were in. And he's like in his 80s now. And I saw the first season, which I like. The second season is out. I have to watch it. And the third season is upcoming, which will be the end. It's only a three-season run for this Picard show. Um... But what the authors, what one of the authors wound up finding out was when, when this Picard show was going to come out, and I think 2019 or 2020, whenever the first year came out, they got a heads up about it in, say, 2017, 2018, that this show was happening. And this author realized that all the stories that were told as novels were going to become null and void. And this is similar, I'm going to get into Star Wars, similar to what happened to, to Star Wars once Disney purchased it. So he got a heads up from someone that was working at Paramount or said that this show was in development. And he realized that a lot of the books that he wrote and some of his peers and friends wrote, again, were just going to be considered null and void. So he pitched a story to his two colleague writer friends and then to whoever owns the, the Star Trek writing license um, or literary license 
and said, we want to tell this story to wrap up the novels, but in a way that won't contradict what's going to be said and told in the Picard show. Since they had no idea what was going to be said, they were figuring that the that the creators of Picard weren't going to look back at the books and try to marry everything up and keep everything clean. So what they wound up doing, which was interesting to me, was... And again, I'm not a big Star Trek geek, but I've seen enough of these shows and movies just on a lot, and I like them, that... Um, I was picking up kind of on things. There was a movie in 1996 that came out. It was the second Star Trek Next Generation movie with those characters. The first being the movie Generations, which actually had um, William Shatner in it as well, in addition to Patrick Stewart. So the two captains met and, and kind of teamed up to defeat somebody. This was the first movie that was solely the Next Generation characters. And it involved the cyborg evil species, the Borg, who coined the phrase resistance is futile and they're just really difficult for the good guys, the Federation to defeat. And it just kind of opens up with the Federation battling the Borg and their big spaceship and they're attacking earth. And as they're attacking earth, they send like a probe out and it causes a distortion in, in time and makes this probe and, and the enterprise spaceship go back in time because they noticed that earth was, is now totally infested and controlled by this Borg species. So they have to go back in time to stop it from happening. Okay, fine. How these authors figured out how to diverge the novels from this Picard show is in the, in the books, in the last book, when they're trying to figure out how do we defeat these enemies that are destroying all these timelines and realities so they can grow and, and, and feed off of them. And they realized that the movie first contact was, the point where in their in their story, in their books, any, everything that happened after that first contact movie is considered a different reality. And then everything that's happened in the movies and the show Picard is like the main reality. So I just thought that was interesting reading as many Star Wars books as I did, as I have and continue to. When Disney purchased Lucasfilm in 2012 and they started creating their own books all the other books that came out from 1991 to 2012 were considered not canon. They were just, they're considered legends. That's the actual banner. So the Star Trek folks found a way to round that using that first contact movie as a way to change or to separate timelines. And remember, J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek movie in 2009 with Chris Pine in it and Zoe Saldana when the Star Trek crew was younger took that same approach. They had a point in that movie where something happened, and now this is a new timeline for, for the young characters versus Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner and DeForest Kelly from you know the, the 60s um, TV show. Star Wars didn't, didn't do that. They just said, ah, everything that we wrote for the past 20 years doesn't matter. Only the Disney new stuff matters. And I wound up reading a run of comic books um, recently called uh it's actually called star wars legacy and the first run and i had all the comic books and i sold them because just wanted to make some money off of them um started the comics pick up 130 years after return of the jedi and this is a good run for anybody out there that wants to check it out there's trade paperbacks out there that you can you can read it lasted for 50 issues so a little over four years and it follows Cade skywalker who's one of luke skywalker's descendants and he was a Jedi, but then the Sith defeated the Jedi, so he became a smuggler and a little bit of a drug addict, etc. 
and the whole story is about his arc of redemption like all the all the skywalkers have to be redeemed because they all go to shit at some point um becomes a smuggler um and it follows he and his friends you know Cade rediscovering his jedi past and and fighting the sith and defeating them okay fine what I wound up picking up about a week ago, because I've always wanted to read it, and it was okay. I mean, I went through it pretty quickly. It was an 18-issue run, and it was the second version or volume, or the fourth volume, actually, of this Star Wars Legacy run. And it followed, the character it follows was Anya Solo. So it was a female descendant of Han and Leia. And this was 138 years after Return of the Jedi. And there were just some interesting parallels I was kind of going to go over. And those of you that have seen the Star Wars movies, you're going to pick up on it right away. In fact, right after I say this. In this story, Anya does not have any Force abilities, but she is a junk trader. She comes into possession of a lightsaber. She's marked for death, and then her adventure begins. So... Two of those three things that I said, junk trader comes into possession of a lightsaber is Rey from The Force Awakens in the sequel trilogy. She, in this comic book run, teams with a bounty hunter droid, um, a Mon Calamari, that's the species engineer. Mon Calamari is basically, if you remember, Admiral Akbar, the guy with the squish, the fish head and the red, reddish-orange skin, the, the eyes on the side of his head, and he kept saying, it's a trap on Return of the Jedi. Um, and an Imperial Knight, and their job was to clear her name and hunt down a Sith that was causing some problems. This Imperial Knight character is interesting because it's a person of color. It's a black character who wears half wears half stormtrooper armor, but it's red, no helmet, has force abilities, and it was his lightsaber that Anya found. And it really reminded me of the character Finn, played by John, John Boyega, in the sequel trilogy. Remember, leading up to The Force Awakens releasing, a lot of people thought that Finn was going to be a Jedi because he was holding the lightsaber and all the promotional materials throughout the three movies. He keeps wanting to tell Rey something, but never does, whether it's he has force abilities or he loves her. That was just never resolved, which was just ridiculous. So there's another similarity there. And then there were similar scenes to a couple scenes in the, in the force awakens. If you remember the scene where Ray and Finn are, are, trying to avoid the TIE fighters and they're going through a star destroyer that crash landed on the planet Jakku. And Fen looks around and says something like, are we really doing this to Ray who's piloting in this comic book? They're flying through a asteroid field trying to get away from, I don't think they were TIE fighters, but people that are pursuing them. And the female character Anya says to the male black character, are we really doing this? And then later on their ship gets captured and kind of, tractor beamed up into a larger ship which was the same way it looked almost exactly the same as when the millennium falcon got caught in the force awakens and then you reveal that it was you know han solo and chewbacca that did it so i think there was definitely some inspiration that jj abrams and whomever else took and just in terms of some slight things to these characters it just seemed way too obvious for it to be a coincidence and the last book, and this one I actually listened to, was um, a Star Wars book called The Princess and the Smuggler. And this was basically the marriage of Han Solo and Princess Leia. This essentially replaced, th- there was a book in the old continuity called The Courtship of Princess Leia, written by Dave Wolverton, 
1994, I believe, um, that showed how someone else was vying for Leia's hand in marriage and Han ultimately wins her affection, etc. Um, in this story, Han and Leia got married a day or two after the end of Return of the Jedi on Endor by the Ewoks. I think that the chief Ewok, I think his name is Chief Chirpa, was the one that was presiding over the ceremony. And quite honestly, the reason why they, they needed to get married so fast was because, or is because, in, in this newly established Disney canon, the Kylo Ren character, the Ben Solo character, played by Adam Driver, is about 30 years old. So they had to put a ring on, on Leia's finger quickly. So when they do the deed, uh, it's got to happen quickly <laughs> because they can't wait years like they did in the old canon. Otherwise, the age of, of Kylo Ren would not uh, would not match up. So, you know, definitely didn't want to have uh, Leia and Han have, get pregnant or have a child out of a wedlock, especially with Disney owning it. This story was a bit of a Harley Quinn romance story, and it was interesting hearing it be uh, read aloud. And each chapter actually alternated, like one one chapter was called Han, then Leia, then Han again, and Leia. The Han chapters were read by uh, a man, the Leia chapters were read by a female. But this was, I mean, if I, I definitely heard way too much of, you know, her red lips and cheeks and being caressed and how much they love each other and Han wanting to stay in bed all day. It, it was... I don't think it was an overwhelming amount, but it was just enough for me. I wasn't expecting that. And essentially the story of this is after they get married, Han and Leia go on a honeymoon on a large, luxurious space yacht. And as the, as the yacht has like excursions onto other planets, like you might go on a cruise and then, you know, they may stop in Mexico or the Bahamas, et cetera, same sort of thing. But they, the ship winds up stopping on like an ice planet and they wind up finding that the Empire is in control of the planet, even though the people don't realize it. So Han and, and Leia um, raise a rebellion there and, and help free the planet from, from the Empire. It was fine. Not really what I was expecting in terms of like the lovey-lovey angle of it. But if anyone's looking to read it or, or listen to it, I, I think you'll enjoy parts of it. And even the the Star Wars legacy comics that I mentioned, the Star Trek books that I listen to, um, if you're a sci-fi fan or a fan of those franchises, I think any one of those you will enjoy. And last but certainly not least, I'm um, going to give a brief Super Bowl preview. I'm not going to be one of those Niner fans that said, well, the Niners lost, so I don't care. Of course I care. I'm going to be watching. I just I don't think have the interest to do any sort of a deep dive as to who is going to win and why I'm not going to throw a bunch of stats at everybody, et cetera. I will just kind of conclude the podcast by saying, I think Philadelphia is going to win. And I think it comes down to Philadelphia having the personnel to match up with Kansas city. So if they have a strong enough secondary between slay Bradbury, um, CJ Gardner, Johnson, they have a great, Front four in terms of a pass rush to get after Mahomes. The Chiefs offensive line is is a little bit better than the, the 49ers offensive line. Mahomes is still hobbled by the ankle injury. I'm not going to say that he's a sitting duck against that pass rush, but it's something that I think should worry Kansas City that Philadelphia can get after them. And they're strong at the linebacker level and they're strong in the secondary. 
Philadelphia has two great weapons on the outside at receiver. They can run the ball, whether it's Sanders or Gainwell or Boston Scott or Jalen Hurts on the read option. It was something that San Francisco, I think, bottled up pretty well until their defense just kind of collapsed just due to the fact they were on the field so much. This The Eagles are only a one-and-a-half-point favorite for a reason. It really does feel like a coin flip because on the other side is Patrick Mahomes. And by extension, Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy. The Chiefs can't run the ball. I don't know if they're really going to try between Isaiah Pacheco and Jarek McKinnon. I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is going to be activated for this game. The best way to negate a pass rush is running the ball, screen passes, quick passes, which I'm sure... Reed is going to dial up, but Kansas City really likes chunk plays, and chunk plays sometimes take time to get open and develop. And I think the more, if this is going to turn into a pass fest for the Chiefs, the way the AFC Championship game did against the Bengals, the Eagles' pass rush is much different than what the Cincinnati Bengals presented two weeks ago. And I think that will ultimately be the difference. I'm saying I'm saying Philadelphia 30 to 27 uh, with a little bit of confidence. But I think Patrick Mahomes is such an X factor. Like he he is that guy. When you talk about players that can put a team on his shoulders, his back, his gimpy ankle. He is one that can do it. And for, for so many people out there that were criticizing, you know, Jimmy during his time with, with the Niners that he's not that type of player, how many of them are there in the NFL? I think Burrow can do it. Patrick Mahomes certainly can do it. I think Josh Allen has shown glimpses that he can do it. Not sure about Jalen Hurts, the sample. I mean, it, he's had a really good year. Shoulders banged up a little bit. But there's no one else in the league. If there's only two and a half or three quarterbacks out of 32, that's what, 10% that are that kind of special, that kind of guy that can take a game over themselves. That's why you're never going to count, you know, Kansas City out. But the last time the Chiefs were in the Super Bowl, Mahomes did have a banged up foot. It was a, a toe issue that time. The Buccaneers got after him like crazy. And the Chiefs actually didn't score a touchdown. They just kicked field goals and, and wound up getting plastered, you know, by the Buccaneers um, at home in Tampa Stadium. I don't think it's going to go like that. It would surprise me if it went, it would surprise me if this game was a four, a 10 or 13 or 14 point win for either side. I think it's going to be close. And I think there is a stat, and I couldn't find it, where in four categories, the Chiefs and the Eagles were exactly identical. Whether it was, I think it was maybe number of points in the regular season, points in the postseason, touchdown something, but identical, which is why it's more or less a dead heat when it comes to the point spread of Philly with uh, a point and a half. But I will echo Christian McCaffrey. He was interviewed today, and he basically said, I hope both teams lose. He, Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel are still not over the NFC Championship game. I think I am. On that. I never want to watch that game again. I don't think there's any reason to. Because I think everybody feels, you know, and Brandon Ayuk was the most outspoken saying, we were ready to expose them. Everything we had schemed up was going to work. It just doesn't work when you don't have a quarterback. Um, and that could be a little bit of sour grapes. But 
even though I picked San Francisco to lose that game against Philly, I think a lot of people, everybody, except for Eagle fans, probably wanted to see what that looked like for both teams at full strength. So that concludes the podcast for this week. I want to thank everybody who listened on uh, Tuesday and came back today for the plus section. And next week, more of the same. We're going to dive into any 49er news and notes. We'll, we'll talk more about the Steve Wilkes hire at defensive coordinator. We'll talk more about Purdy's um, surgical choice. And then we're actually going to get into and look at the 20-plus free agents, San Francisco's free agents that they have, and discuss who they should re-sign how much maybe they should get and why, and then look at some you know some gaps that are still going to be on the on the team um, as we get closer to free agency on March fifteenth. So again, thank you for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Enjoy the Super Bowl, and we'll talk soon. Take care.